There are more than 250,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This is a national crisis, and there are thousands and thousands of families who have no answers about who killed their loved ones. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's cold case investigative team as we work to break the case for one of those families. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, it's me, Jen. Listeners probably noticed that our second season abruptly stopped a couple months ago. That wasn't our original plan or intent, but some events that occurred in the spring led us to the decision to end season two of the podcast, unless or until an arrest is made. Many listeners, especially those who follow our Facebook group, The Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson, already know that one of Debbie's family members disagreed with my decision to share some case file documents with a producer at CrimeCon. The actions taken by that family member as a result of our disagreement caused George and me and many others a great deal of stress and disappointment, to say the least. We spent the past several months doing our best to overcome all the unforeseen challenges thrown at us. After countless hours of discussion, and many emails from other victims' family members asking for assistance, we finally decided that our skills and resources would be better utilized on another case. Please know that this decision was not made lightly. This aside, I recently got on the phone with George to discuss the current status of Debbie's case and some other related topics. Hey George, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm pretty good. I wanted to call and record with you a little bit to give our listeners an update on what's been going on the last few months on Debbie's case. The biggest thing, I guess, is we actually went to Lubbock again in March and uh, yes. spent, what, four or five days there? Yeah, yeah. It was a very productive trip. Mm-hmm. Had one of our new investigative sleuths, Melissa. She actually flew in from Florida and joined us for those days, and she was a huge help. And what stood out to you most about our last trip? For me, it was the recreation that we did at the house. The recreation was really, really good. I think the thing that stood out to me the most was when you and Melissa decided to do some surveillance on Paul. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was kind of a daring act, you know, to go in and visit some of his haunts, so to speak. And again, as we've talked a lot about, we're not saying that he had anything to do with this, but he is a person that's interesting to talk to in this case. And mm -hmm. We haven't had much communication with him. And then we've tracked down, what, 30, 40 people in this case so far. I mean, we've knocked on doors. Lots. Actually, more than that. So, again, people think that we focus on him maybe too much, but that's fine. We'll focus on everybody we need to focus on until somebody's arrested for this crime. So I think that the fact that you two, the first night we were there, basically, you guys go to a bowling alley that he's known to frequent, and you receive a tip there that he hangs out at a like a bar and grill place not too far from there. And you guys just decide to go in there and lo and behold, he's there. Yep. So you and Melissa surveilled him for a while, which could be useful, possibly. Mm -hmm. And then he gets up and goes to the restroom. And then you guys go and take some cards that you know has a QR code that connects to our Facebook page. And you set it on his phone and then you went out and put one on his truck. Yep. And I think the thing that surprised me the most by that was that he didn't call us. Yeah, I know. Because even mean, though we did not meet the threshold for harassment, 
some people would interpret it that way and be pretty annoyed. Well, yeah. If anybody were to perform a similar action to me, I would at least call them to address the issue. Mm -hmm. At the very least, I would call and say, hey, there's nothing left for me to tell you. Don't be following me around. Don't be putting cards on my truck or my phone. Mm -hmm. At the very least, I would do that, you know? Uh, Yes. Maybe he doesn't take it this way, but I think a lot of people would take it that people are being accusatory towards him. Mm -hmm. So... That part shocked me. Well, I was going to say, listeners can go over to Diamond State Murder Board and actually listen to the episode where me and Melissa are in the bar and the bowling alley recording live if they want to hear more like on-scene audio recording of it. Absolutely. You also get the flavor. It's always good to have the context of why certain actions were taken, certain questions were asked, and also just to get an idea of what it was like with him right there. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, that was an interesting night for sure, an an unexpected one. (laughs) We didn't plan any of that other than to drop by the bowling alley and then ended up meeting people who remember when Debbie was killed and have lived in Lubbock their whole lives. And they were all incredibly gracious and kind and talking to us and giving us their recollections and helping us make posts on a Facebook group and introducing us to a former Lubbock police detective. I mean, that one visit to a bowling alley, which was Melissa's idea, just it ballooned into like some really great information that we obtained. Absolutely. I can't agree more. And for me, that was probably the highlight. I will say this. When we did the recreation, and I think you and I are in firm agreement about this, when we took the dummy to the house and we recreated the possible scenarios, it was eye-opening for me. Yeah, And just seeing the angles, trying to figure out the height of the perpetrator, trying to figure out if she was ambushed or was it a frontal attack. We had a dagger style knife that we used. We had people out there recording it for us. Mm -hmm. We had a dummy that was approximately her weight. Yes. Just how heavy that thing was. We dressed the dummy and we were huffing and puffing trying to get the clothes on. And it is harder to dress a dummy or a dead body than to undress it but still whoever right disrobed debbie was they were on a mission <laughs> right yeah it would it take a lot of manual dexterity yes to disrobe her and again not discounting the possibility that it was a female yep. female could have been involved it may just be a little bit of a different scenario i would say almost certain that a male was involved to mm-hmm. some degree for sure mm-hmm. i agree the person had to turn Debbie's body over at least once to get her pants down. And that wasn't easy. No, not at all. So that was definitely a good exercise. And then you and Melissa using the knife as a prop, trying to figure out how did this whole thing go down? Because if we can figure out the order in which the wounds were delivered, that probably will give us clues about what transpired in the couple minutes before Debbie was stabbed. And... I think we're in agreement on this, right? We now tend to think that that big gash to her left armpit was possibly the first wound. I think that after doing the experiment with the dummy, it's the thing that makes the most logical sense. Yeah. She didn't get very far. It's a small carport. You know, we had kicked around the idea that that might have been the initial wound just because of the fact that she didn't get very far and she didn't seem to put up any type of resistance or fight. Mm -hmm. She had no defensive wounds to speak of that we could ascertain from the autopsy pictures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we get there, it seems like there might have been somebody confronting her and she might have stuck her left hand out, kind of one of those gestures like, get away from me, I don't want to talk to you. 
one of those things. And as soon as she does, the perpetrator's got that mm-hmm. knife in their right hand and he just, you know, plunges. Yep. And she takes off running, but she doesn't get very far because her heart has potentially been pierced, her lungs are pierced, and the catastrophic damage, she just can't get any further, or maybe her attacker was able to just overpower her yes. at the 25-foot mark from where the attack started. Mm-hmm. Would really love to have known there were droplets of blood next to the steps, not where she was dragged back to, mm-hmm. but just to see if there was any even slight pattern that could be examined or deduced. It might give some clue with the splatter pattern, but obviously her body was dragged back and it smeared a lot of things. So Yeah, that's but, the problem. The bloody drag marks likely covered up any blood droplets that might have fallen from her if she was running towards the carport. And then unfortunately yeah. she laid by the back step and bled out. And so all that blood would cover up any previous blood evidence from there. I will say that doing all that kind of changed my mind on the ambush scenario, which is what I originally thought in this case, that someone was lying in Mm -hmm. wait for her in that backyard. But now I think the armpit wound was first, which means she's facing her attacker, which probably means she was confronted face to face in some form or fashion before the attack went down. Yeah, I agree. I think we both agreed initially when we started this investigative process we thought it was very a very good likelihood that she was ambushed just based on what we knew initially Mm -hmm. she wasn't chased through the house or anything like that this was most likely a straight-on attack Mm -hmm. and again and we've said it ad nauseum probably somebody she knows yeah most likely i would be incredibly surprised if it turns out to be a stranger i can't even begin to fathom that scenario or how that would have happened None of it makes sense for it to be a stranger. Is it possible that we're wrong on some of these points? Absolutely. We just hope that we're able to develop enough information for the police. Yep. That they can develop another prong in this, and that will get us closer to the truth. Yes. And by the way, we still have no word on any DNA results. I do know from poking around that DNA Labs International, which is the lab the evidence was sent to, moved locations earlier this year, which... I guess added to their backlog, and that may be the reason why this is taking so long for them to get results. But if you want to hear me discuss more on the DNA potential results and what they could mean and what the processes are, go over to my YouTube channel, Jen Buchholz PI, and check out our last live Zoom Q&A recording that George and I did because listeners can get a whole lot more explanation on the DNA that we discussed there. But just for that small update we don't have any update (laughs) at this moment on dna (laughs) i know that's what everybody's asking about and anxious for as are we and our crowdsourcing yet again brought an amazing person to our doorstep a guy named ryan russell reached out to us recently and he's the founder of open door genetics and he does investigative genetic genealogy and offered up his services so we've added another resource to our team if It ends up that Lubbock PD gets an unknown DNA profile back. They have the option to use Ryan's company to identify the family tree of that profile and ultimately figure out who the profile belongs to. So huge thanks to him. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I mean, that's how the Golden State Killer got caught. Yeah. So, George, it's difficult for me to really express 
these words, but I think we've agreed we're kind of at a point where we've exhausted all our resources that we can come up with on Debbie's case. I agree. I mean, this is a journey of a thousand miles, and we had to walk so many miles, and now we've got to hand it off to someone else to finish this job, and that's the Lubbock police and possibly anybody in the public who might have some additional information that would help solve Debbie's case. But we've done everything we can do at this point. I mean, obviously, we'll continue to run our Facebook page. And if anything new pops up, we will definitely be all over it. It's kind of strange. We've been working on this case for the better part of a year now. And we've had so many things that we've had to schedule and plan and people Mm -hmm. we had to find. And Mm -hmm. we had to record all these podcast episodes. And the whole thing with CrimeCon was going to happen and it didn't happen. And all this other stuff, the ups and downs. And it's eaten up a lot of our lives. It has. And the thing of it is, we would be more than happy for it to eat up some more, but we don't have anything to do. Yeah. Anyone who's going to talk to us, we've talked to. Obviously, there's a few that aren't. (laughs) I don't expect that to change. It would be nice if it did, but I don't expect it. And we've been to Lubbock twice on our own time and had a lot of help from local residents there, too, who've dedicated time and money and energy to this as well. But... Until police get the DNA results back and they start bringing people in to take DNA and prints and interrogate them or interview them, those are investigative actions that we just don't have control over, nor can we influence them. But That's exactly right. We still communicate with Sergeant Anderson. I met with him in March when we were there. I gave him a carbon copy of our entire investigative file, so he's got everything that we have, and hopefully it helps him. But I think, again, we're just kind of at a the end of this road for the time being. But I don't want listeners to think that we're just moving on because it's not like that. Like you said, we'll keep the Facebook group up. If anybody does come forward with a tip we don't already have, we will happily put them in touch with Sarnie Anderson or pass the information anonymously. We have the ability to keep people's identity confidential if they wish, and we're happy to do that. So I guess we're stepping into a more passive role at this point. Well, you know, in our last case, we had stepped into a passive role in that one, and then, boom, there was an arrest. Yes. I think the investigative file that we have compiled is probably, I'll be generous, is two to three times larger than the one that we were given in this case. Yeah. And so we interviewed as many of these people as we possibly could. We drove all over West Texas. Yep. (laughs) Um, We drove to Missouri a couple times. But we still have our book coming out, so... We do. um, I wouldn't call it a renewed effort, but it is one more step in this process that we're just able to put information out on yet another media platform. And we may do some presentations or book signings, but we haven't scheduled anything yet. Yeah. So we'll see. But the book is called Silent Silhouette. And where is it going to be available, George? Primarily, it's going to be available through Amazon. That's where the vast majority of people buy their books now. Obviously, bookstores will carry it if they choose to carry it. We're tentatively going to launch it in August. If you guys are following this podcast or obviously you keep up with what we do and we'll be posting to social media and everywhere else, we'll make sure there's a blanket announcement. We came to a startling conclusion when we started this process is that we were dealing with an older set of people and the people we were dealing with are more likely to read than to listen to a podcast. Yeah. There might be one person, one, maybe just one, that can give us the clue that we need to pass on to the police to get this case solved. Yeah. 
And if that person doesn't listen to podcasts, and if that person isn't on Facebook, mm-hmm. guess what? We may never reach them. So yeah. maybe they're a reader, you know? That's why we did it. Yes. And, and so listeners know any profits from book sales go to reimburse me and George's travel expenses, but also into a fund for whatever case we work next so that we can provide a reward fund for that victim. Mm-hmm. So the intent of this book is not for you and me to make a bunch of money because we're not going right. to. Right. Um, no, we're not. It's to help our team be more effective or add more resources to our team efforts for the future. And we're going to need it because we've built up a pretty good following mm-hmm. around the country between the two cases we've worked so far. And we've got to have some type of support to keep this coalition of crowdsourcers together. You know, we've got to be able to find another case and start working on it. And at the end of the day, we've got to get results. And if you're going to take part in this endeavor, you've got to throw everything at it that you can. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a part of that is the cost, money to travel and do these things. Another purpose of this book is to pass on lessons learned so that maybe others out there who are interested in getting into this field or trying to help an investigative team can learn from some of the things that we've done. So there's definitely a couple chapters on our processes and what's worked pretty well for us. Yeah, I think you and I have talked about this um, in public. We'll probably talk about it a lot more. One of our goals isn't just for us to go out and do these type of things. It is to help train other people. Mm-hmm. Our experiences are pretty organic. I come from a journalism background. You come from a military background. And so we use the skills in our vocations, you know, especially interviewing and tracking people down. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, we've got these really good skill sets that are really useful in this arena. So we put them together. But there were unexpected things that happened along the way. Oh, sure. (laughs) If there's somebody out there who's just wanting to learn You know, maybe they want to start their own Facebook page and build a team to try to solve a case. Because, as you've said many times, we've got Mm 280,000 unsolved murder cases in this country. And the chances that law enforcement are going to solve all those cases are zero. Right. It's impossible. Yeah, it's an impossible task. It's an epidemic. And we've got to do something. And... One thing that we have learned is that there are many, many, many people who are willing to spend their own time and time to go out and try to help get justice for these victims and bring peace and closure to the family members. Yes. And along those same lines, you and I are kind of both working through one of my employers, American Military University, to write an actual cold case investigations course through which students can learn our processes in detail and then be able to apply them by joining the university's volunteer cold case team that we're working to get put together. So we've got (laughs) a pretty big vision for the future, but I think ultimately it's going to benefit everybody once we can get all that up and running. Absolutely. Now, I look forward to the challenge. The part of this that's tough for us is that we just want there to be a phone call early in the morning saying, hey, someone's been arrested. Mm -hmm. But even at at the nearly year mark, it does leave a little bit of a sour taste in your mouth that's still unsolved. You know, we've gone to Debbie's grave several times, and I think about her now. She's around the age of my parents, you know. That means that she would be the age of potentially being a grandmother. Mm -hmm. You know, she might be... 
Easily. getting close to retiring. Mm-hmm. She didn't get to do any of that because some scumbag showed up with a knife mm-hmm. with ill intent in her heart. And that poor woman bled to death on her own carport. And no one's ever been held accountable for that. And so it's a little bittersweet knowing that our time on this journey is not completely done, but we've gone as far as we can go without new information. But I'm still hopeful. Yeah, Maybe me too. This DNA will come in. Or I like good old-fashioned police work too. You yeah. know, go out and talk to people, do some interviews. You know, get out and work the case. Yeah. You've said it a thousand times. You could not believe that somebody could go 46 years without telling someone that they did this. Right. Somebody out there knows and, or has heard yeah. at least a partial confession on this crime. I'm sure of it. Yeah. And I agree with you a thousand percent. And we've got to find that person. So if you know of this person or know anything about this person, please contact us or contact the Lubbock Police Department to let them know. And if you contact us first, we'll make sure that your information gets mm-hmm. to the Lubbock PD and you can remain anonymous. We will yes. make sure that no one knows who you are. And just so people know, if you do have the information, you're not going to be charged with anything. Even if there was a charge to be brought, the statute of limitations is long expired. So just do the right thing. And quite frankly, a murder is obviously a public safety issue. If someone's willing to stab someone 17 times and kill them, they'd probably be willing to do it again. And maybe they have. So it is an obligation of the public if they have information that can get a killer off the streets to report it. Agreed. It's a civic obligation Mm -hmm. and it's a moral obligation. Yeah. I do hope Lubbock PD will listen and I hope they'll give their community at least a press release or some kind of update on the case. I do think the Lubbock residents deserve that at least after a year of this. There's surely something that they could tell to the public. But again, we have no control over that. Right. Well, I'm going to let listeners know that I have a new job. Yeah, and I'm do. only bringing this up because it's directly relevant, but I'm now a criminal investigator for my local sheriff's department, and I work side by side with the detectives there. And they have a slew of unsolved cold cases that I'm hoping down the road, maybe through a partnership with AMU, we can tackle some of those with our team. Anyways, I just want to put that out there because it's directly relevant and is going to provide us some new and really fantastic connections that are going to help us. So I'm excited. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited for you. And I know you're going to do a great job. And it's also going to be a great opportunity for you probably get to learn some new investigative tactics. Mm -hmm. I think you and I are in 100% agreement that the best path forward in the future for law enforcement and just for solving these crimes, there's going to have to be some connection to people in the community and other people who can bring other resources to bear yes through their expertise and through their willingness to give up their time and sergeant anderson even in debbie's case acknowledged there are things that you and i can do that he can't yes we don't have to give miranda rights or any of that stuff to talk to someone we don't need an arrest warrant or search warrant yeah we have some distinct advantages they have some too of course but We have some as well. Yeah. If you take our advantages and couple them with their advantages, Mm -hmm. that is the formula for getting some of these really hard to solve cases solved. Yes. There's going to have to come a realization from the prosecutor down to the officers who are on the street that 
there needs to be some mutual cooperation. And the thing about it is, it seems like we used to have that more mm-hmm. back when we didn't have DNA and we didn't have all these forensics. Right. Seems like there's a lot more secrecy. And you've said it multiple times on episodes. I'd like to see a case where keeping everything in the case file secret for years worked because it doesn't. That's basically what we've done with the information we have. We picked and choose a few things to keep secret that had never been released to the media. But information sharing is what makes this process successful. If people don't have anything to go on, how can they help? So keeping a case file locked down for decades is just not effective. I totally agree. I've been doing this for nearly 20 years. I've never had one case point out to me or said we held everything back and we were able to solve, especially a cold case. I've never come across a case where holding back worked. Right. After a couple of years, if holdback hasn't led you to anything fruitful, then it's time to open up that case file and let somebody else have a look at it and see what they might be able to come up with. Yeah. Whether it be another agency, another detective, or some private citizen resource or journalism resource. I've had many case files shared with me. Mm -hmm. So there comes a moment where you need to utilize a different type of resource Funny enough, in the Rebecca Gould case, when you and I very, very first started talking about it, Mm -hmm. the detective who had the case for years and years and years and years thought that a guy named Chris was the primary suspect. But when I first talked to you, you didn't think that. You immediately thought, what? No, I knew it wasn't Chris because Chris was a stranger to the house where Rebecca was killed. He wasn't a stranger to Rebecca, but they didn't hang out. And... I said to you, no stranger is going to stick around and clean someone else's house and move the body. Why? It's such a risk. The primary reason that a crime scene gets cleaned up and a body gets moved is because the killer has a known connection to both. And then look how that case turned out. Sure enough. You know, it's Rebecca's boyfriend's cousin. So makes total sense now why the scene was cleaned up and her body was moved. But police yeah, I mean, ignored all that. They needed, all they needed was your perspective. Yeah. And police completely ignored that through the years on her case, as far as we can tell. They just never thought of the value of that, but nor would they listen to any outsider that tried to explain the importance of those actions when a killer takes them. Like I said earlier, keeping a couple details secret, totally understand that for interview purposes, but the rest, put it out there. It's going to trigger a memory or a thought or something with a member of the public. I guarantee it. And that's what you and I try to do with our information. We're pretty transparent. This is our last planned episode for season two of Break the Case. However, if there's any major developments in Debbie's case, if an arrest is made, if police put out a press release, anything like that, we will come back and record more episodes and make sure to keep everybody updated. If some becomes available, we definitely will do that, as well as on George's podcast, Diamond State Murder Board. So, any last words, George? Really enjoyed doing this project with you for this season, and I'm looking forward for us to do an update here. Yes. Hopefully very soon. Yes. With a name of a person who has been charged with Deborah Sue murder. Yeah, and definitely looking forward to starting on a new case, starting at the beginning again and going through our process and hopefully having more successes in the future. So I guess with that, George, we are <laughs> got to go back to our real jobs. Yeah, this is almost like a, I won't call it a job, I'll call it a passion. Okay. Yes, 
Definitely, definitely. Well, thank you for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it and for helping keep all our listeners updated. See ya. Bye-bye. All right. George and I and our team of volunteer investigators feel we've done our best to form a network of every resource possible to help remove a killer from the streets and let Debbie finally rest in peace. In the event any updates or press releases from the Lubbock Police are issued, we will be back to provide those updates to listeners. If and when an arrest is made, George and I plan to travel to Lubbock to cover any court hearings. I also want to let listeners know that our book is now available. Search for Silent Silhouette on Amazon to read about our comprehensive investigation into Debbie's case and learn about some of our investigative practices. The book is available in Kindle and paperback version, but readers do not need an actual Kindle to read that version. They can simply download the Kindle app on any device. Looking towards the future, we're actively working on season three of this podcast. We've received dozens of case submissions of unsolved homicides for our consideration. George and I are currently in the process of reviewing case documents, talking to family members, and contacting law enforcement agencies. We anticipate selecting a case very soon and plan to start releasing episodes of season three this fall. Please be sure to subscribe to Break the Case wherever you listen to podcasts to follow along with our next investigation and get updates on our first two seasons. Thanks again to everybody for all of your support. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchaltz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leechen Kranick and Andy Crow with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Special thanks to the Casebreakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.